On today's episode, we talk about Silicon Valley Bank. We talk about the Fed approach to interest rates, the market. We talk about real estate rates in the future and what the hell a realtor is going to do to get real estate moving in 2023. You talk about it privately. We talk about it publicly. This is the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. Welcome back again to Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered. I'm your host, James Dwiggins, along with my co-host, Keith Robinson, a.k.a. Crazy Uncle Keith. Keith, talk to us about who's coming on the show. Yeah, excited to. We've got Chris George, the founder of CMG Financial, one of the largest single owner mortgage banks in the U.S., and it just got bigger. He will talk about that a little bit. Uh, and make sure you stay till the end on this one, because I ask him one of my patented Crazy Uncle Keith oh, questions. God. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, it got weird. So uh, let's bring him on. All right, Chris, thanks for being here on the pod with us. We are excited to have you here. I have known Chris George for a very long time now. Uh, we've traveled together. He's one of the smartest people I have met uh, in a lot of different industries, but especially the financial services industry. Uh, founder, CEO of CMG Financial. Let's start out with uh, the big news. CMG was already big. And you just got a lot bigger. Uh, talk to us about the the uh, acquisition of Homebridge. Well, I'd be happy to, James. Uh, thank you and Keith for inviting me uh, on your uh, podcast today. It's always a fun time and a pleasure to be with you guys. You, uh, it's uh, you guys really keep uh, the topics fresh, and I appreciate being in invited. We're really excited about this Homebridge acquisition. We are. Uh, if there is such a thing as a, uh, a glove uh, kind of tight fit, this is it, uh, hand in glove kind of fit. Uh, one of the great things about this company is they have almost an identical culture as ours. They think about how they serve the customer, how they serve one another, very similarly to the way we do. Uh, secondly, it seems like where they are, we aren't. Uh, so they're very strong in places that we have a little bit of coverage, the Pacific Northwest for sure, uh, and frankly, in the entire state of New York. We don't have any offices there at all, and they are very big in that state. We're big in Texas and clearly big in places like Tennessee, Texas, and uh, all throughout the Southwest, and they're bigger in the Northeast and then also in the Northwest. So. We're very happy about not just the personality and the culture, but the geography of how this uh, group and us come together. I happen to know that the president and the CEO of the company for more than 30 years, um, it's been a really good, he's a good man, um, a very similar uh, culture as you guys have. And so we're really excited about partnering with them. Uh, the tail of the tape, uh, there'll be about 350 to 450 loan officers coming on board, about a thousand employees total, uh, something in the neighborhood of a half a billion plus dollars a month in volume. Wow. So it's a Sheesh. it's a big deal. We're super excited about it. I was less, I had less gray hair, <laughs> but at least right. you still have hair. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. He's bald, yeah. so yeah. It doesn't yeah. seem fair to say that. It but, does. Um, it does. It's, it's great. I'm, we're coming to the tail end. The, this actually happens a week from today will be the closing of this thing. Uh, we are also purchasing a big chunk of MSR financing, which will put us, not financing, MSR uh, uh, loans. Hmm. And so uh, we are going to be very close to $100 billion in servicing rights underneath wow. our wings. So we're 
pretty excited. Well, that's ought to be, I mean, look, that's got to be pretty cool. I mean, you know, you started your company from basically a, a tiny little organization to being one of the biggest now in the U.S., especially with this acquisition. So first one of, of those all, garage, kudos. one of those Northern yeah. California garage startups, right, Chris? Yeah. It's a garage startup. It, uh, we, uh, it's not because there's a shortage of commercial space. It's just that we're all <laughs> It's just well, it's so expensive. We got to start in the garage. Well, look, let's let's. Yeah, I want well, to before start we over. before we dive into some other questions. I mean, you know, you went through the downturn, and you and I have had these conversations over some bottles of wine. Like, you know, you built your company. It got really hard, you know, and then you built it back, and that's that's true. That's being a true entrepreneur, right? Like you, you're like, I'm going to throw everything in. I'm not giving up and I'm going to make it through. Um, and I remember, you know, you and Teresa talking about how hard it was during the last downturn. Um, you know, so kudos to that. And, and, you know, I think I've tell people this all the time. These are the opportunities to be aggressive, to grow, you know, to take market share. And that's exactly what you've done. So, you know, uh, something I talked about before, which is a good thing to remind your listeners of right now, some time ago, I heard a speech, and I, I like to listen to other people talk and what they think is important. I always grab a little you know nugget here and there. This particular person said this quote. It has stuck with me all of my life. And the quote was, troubled times are the best times to build market share. Mm-hmm. And when you start thinking about that, we're in that right now. This yep. is that time where you can really dig in deeper and really build market share. And I think those people that are really going at it hard and are not taking their foot off the the gas pedal, I think are going to really reap those dividends in the future when the market kind of normalizes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, I've got a quick question. So just to go back to the culture fit piece that you talked about with Homebridge, uh, we had a guest on our last podcast where we talked about cultural fit and how important it was as you're looking to grow. And regardless of where you are in the industry, you'll be thinking about how to grow through partnership or merger and acquisition. I guess this, maybe the answer is you just knew him for 30 years in the industry, but how, when you're evaluating culture and the human beings involved in the transaction, do you have a process for that? Because I'm sure people listening are considering that as a strategy Mm -hmm. during the rest of this market cycle. Good question. Yeah, fantastic question. It's pretty organic, Keith. So the way that we started this was really, I had a friend that I knew, and I'd already seen his, how he operated. We, um, we, our families knew one another, and the, 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 the story's very similar to us and you guys and James, and we just came together from a business perspective, but it expanded into a more personable, right. uh, personal, the most personal kind of relationship. So our families knew one another. Um, as a matter of fact, what I told Teresa, in one of the documents, if something were to ever happen to me, um, Peter Norton, who is the president and CEO of Homebridge, was a person that I told Teresa to get a hold of in case that you had to have somebody that understood how to run a company of this size. Right. This company was very similar size to ours a few years back, and we've just kind of grown past them. But number one, he's a very smart man. Number two, he's an extremely good man, a great husband, a great friend, a great father, great son. He's just a very, very good man. Um, Also, um, very similar, humble beginning. So that was the nucleus of this thing. We started there. And we thought, okay, well, let's get our friends together. So we got our senior leadership team and their senior leadership and kind of got them on the room. And we didn't really talk about business. We just said, 
How do you view certain things? How do you view serving the customer? How do you view serving one another? And that led to an even bigger group. And we quickly realized as each time we expanded the group, it became pretty obvious that these co- these two companies were really well meshed from a culture yeah. perspective. Smart. Yeah, I love yeah, it. I, I love it. I, I think for the people listening, the big aha I have from that is you don't too often like when i've done when i've tried to find companies to merge with or to to grow uh, my real estate operation usually i didn't look to my friends first right so you know right. I, I looked outside maybe cold calls popeyes trying to you know meeting people in industry events trying to figure out who would or wouldn't be in- interested but trust flattens all business cycles mm-hmm. so yeah. How about we find the people we already know, trust, and love, and see if there's a way that we can become, you know, sort of bigger together. So I think that's a really and smart advice going into this market cycle. That's actually a great comment too, Keith. What we said going into this, Peter and I said we were going to do this as far as we could go without ruining our friendship. Yeah, so <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, we came to a place where if we got, ah, oh, man, you know, our friendship starting to be impaired. Well, then we were going to just go back to where we were. We felt preserving us was more important Mm. than putting these two companies together. As it turns out, we were able to preserve our relationship (laughs) and put the two companies together because we're still friends. Right. And that that in itself, to your point, I think sometimes people go out and say, oh, we're going to go target this particular acquisition. And then, you know, the vision is like this. They don't align. Big disconnect. No amount of money is going to make up that gap. No yeah. amount of compensation makes up um, fractured vision. Yeah. No, it's funny. You hear that a lot in the real estate side. Well, That's my let's... one I'm taking away. No amount of money is going to make up for fractured vision. That's I'm a good writing one. that one down. Write that, that one down. One. That, that should go on a t-shirt. Speaking yeah. of fractured vision, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a good segue. Getting, like, so this is James, unfiltered you're, podcast. So. You're, getting, you're getting good at this podcast. I mean, that was I, just, money. I just like the fact that we can be a little more unfiltered, right? So speaking yeah. of fractured vision, let's talk about <laughs> Silicon Valley Bank. Um, uh, and yeah. I mean, it's a good segue. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's solid. That Chris, solid. Chris is one of those people that, you know, I go to for, for these kinds of questions. So tell us, like, you know, what, what happened? I think everybody knows it, but like break it down from a simplistic version of what happened is this systemic? Are we are we expecting more? The headlines say one thing and another. Like, give us your take on this because you're obviously working very closely with the banks. So I will. I'll give you a couple of things very quickly. Not only, I'll talk to you a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank, and I will also talk with you about what we did when we started hearing more about. There's really been three failures that have occurred, and I'll talk to you about those in a in a moment. But. The essence of what's happening here is the misalignment of assets and liabilities. So they had liabilities. So first of all, real quickly, in a bank, an asset in the bank is a loan. So the money that is owed to the bank is an asset. The money that you put into the bank is a liability because they owe you that money. So when you, what happened with Silicon Valley Bank is they started taking the money that was in the bank and investing that money in a very safe but low return asset. So they invested it largely in treasury bills that were earning one and a half or two and a half percent. Very secure, very pledgeable, because you can pledge those to the home loan bank and get money from them. 
Uh, and so they were making money throughout uh, all throughout 2020 and 2021, largely because of COVID. A number of tech stocks were doing very well. What was happening with work from home and so forth. So Silicon Valley Bank, like you know, what's that old saying that uh, rising tide floats all uh, ships? Well, that was this, right? They were just all kind of riding the tech uh, tide. What happens is though, as interest rates went up, those lower uh, yielding coupons really didn't um, uh, help them with respect to returns. And a lot of people were looking at whether or not the bank was stable from a profitability perspective. There's a, a, well, there's a document and a very simple test. Uh, you can take a look at how much bank capital exists and how much they have as it relates to loans. And if those numbers get distorted, the Fed watches that very closely. As a matter of fact, if your people are interested, I will send you guys a very simple sheet, which we use to assess the um, health, if you will, of the banks that we do business with, because we do oh, wow. business with banks that we invest in, but also banks that fund our loans. And we did this across the board. And by the way, some of these banks have really um, significant capital requirements depending on their size. And some of them are, have less capital requirements, again, if they're more of a community localized bank. Sure. So I'll send that little that little worksheet to you. It's very easy we'll, to do. Yeah, we'll put that and in the description. Let, yeah. yeah, it'll let people be able to say, hey, listen, is my bank safe? So there are mm -hmm. really three banks. There was Silvergate Bank, Signature Bank out of, out of New York, and then, of course, Silicon Valley Bank. I don't, maybe they were just maybe the FDIC was working through the S's at S's. that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, <laughs> when Silvergate Bank went down, Southern California Bank uh, was a bank that was buying second mortgages and also providing warehouse loans. When that lo bank started going sideways, which was late last year, early part of this year, January, we started wondering whether we our bank was safe. And as we did that, we did these assessments starting in January, February, and March. What has occurred is that the Fed, as you know, has a, minim, a maximum guaranteed insurance of $250,000. So if you mm -hmm. have more than 250 grand in a bank and their bank fails, there's a risk to that $250,000. What occurred with Silicon Valley Bank is the Fed lifted that limit and said, it doesn't matter what you have in Silicon Valley Bank, you're covered. That was one of the things they did to make sure that people weren't going to lose a lot of money in the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. And provide Number confidence two, in the market. Yeah. 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 yeah 100%. Bringing, that, yeah. bringing the, the mm -hmm. anxiety down. Mm -hmm. this, the second thing is, is that they allowed banks to pledge assets at the Federal Reserve, even if those assets are in a negative value. So if you have today, if you're paying 4% on a CD and you have a 1.5% treasury bill, or you have a negative value of that, that treasury bill, that treasury bill can be pledged to the Fed and you can get capital from the Fed to make sure that you have adequate capital ratios, even though that particular bill is negative, negative as it relates to the value of today. That was the so second do it, big thing. So they'll do it at the face value of the instrument, not at the market value correct. of the instrument. Yeah. That mm -hmm. is correct. And further, and, and lastly, uh, just the general overall assurances of what the market's doing. I, I, sort of an unintentional consequence of the Silicon Valley bank failure and the couple others I mentioned is that I think it caused the Fed to kind of pause a little bit. The Fed just raised rates again by a quarter, 
But I think they didn't go as much as they could have gone. And in fact, the markets are improving recently because of that. So interest rates have come down a little bit because they Mm -hmm. think that this bank failure phenomenon or the concern that the Fed has about other banks potentially failing has dampened their need to raise rates. We'll come to rates in in a moment. We'll talk about that and affordability as well. But this is not a systemic thing. This is something that has calmed down. Is it possible another bank could fail? Sure, it's it's entirely it's always possible. possible. Sure, they're, yeah. They're yeah. bringing tools to those banks to make sure that they don't. Uh, one, so I have a question. Last thing. I have mm. to ask you because I got I got I got I just have to ask this question because I got to make it weird. Should the <laughs> feds have jumped in and secured everything with Silicon Valley Bank, or should they have let it fail? So I'm gonna get a little bit on my soapbox here. No, it is not yes. good because when a bank fails, people fail, businesses fail. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that that is not a way to shore up the, the confidence of the economy. Even with the things that the Fed did, even with the things that the Fed did, in about a 10 day period of time, Chase took in $15 billion in additional yeah. capital yeah. investments because yeah. people were worried. You know, yeah. They were moving their Chase. money out. Yep. 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 Yeah. We, don't, we don't think they're gonna go sideways. Um, the other thing I'll say to you is, is that what happens now? So typically way back in the day when the, when the uh, excuse me, when the savings and loans crisis occurred, they created this group called the RTC, the Resolution Trust Corporation, and they were disposing of savings and loans around the nation. The FDIC has that role today. So what happens, the FDIC comes in, they clear house with management, they put new management in. The guy that is now running Silicon Valley Bank is a very knowledgeable mortgage guy because for the last 10 years, he was running Fannie Mae. His name's Tim Mm -hmm. Myopoulos, a good friend. Um, Now, what happens to Silicon Valley Bank over the next six to 12 months, they'll dispose of assets, they'll sell stuff. And then once they dispose of all the assets, they start sending people all their money back. So those who have deposits at Silicon Valley Bank should receive their money back probably on a minimum of four and maybe as long as nine months, something in that range. Interesting. All right. So what's the third thing? I interrupted you. There were three things. The only third thing is, is that your comment, and this is my soapbox a little bit here. (laughs) I I don't know how, I don't know how we missed Silicon Valley Bank. And Mm, what bothers me is that we're so focused on creating more and more rules. I would like to challenge regulators, all regulators, bank and and others, stop creating new rules and just enforce the ones that are currently out there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, why do we need more laws? Just enforce the ones we've already got. I mean, there's like 1,600,000 of them. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of discussion. There's going to be a lot of discussion about whether or not we missed signs, and there were plenty, Mm -hmm. that we missed signs that could have kept Silicon Valley Bank from failing. And I think that had they done a better job uh, reviewing and supervising these organizations, I think they could have prevented a few of them from failing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, a, a big hole, and then we can maybe move on from this. And we want to bore. We don't want to nerd out too much on uh, sophisticated bank failures and why. But uh, a part of the big problem is, is you, you had massive capital deployed in what historically is considered a safe asset, but because of the pace of change in interest rates, that asset became devalued. I don't want this thing, this ten-year whatever, at one and a half when I can go get something today at four and a half, right? Mm-hmm. And but. 
they don't, at least my understanding is, they don't have to mark down the value of that instrument, that 10 year note at one and a half, even though it's worth, it was worth X, now it's worth Y. There's no mark to market accounting for that. It's just, it's on the balance sheet at its full rate, even though that isn't true. So in theory, you're looking at it going, oh, I could go sell that whenever I need to if I needed it. But the reality is if you do go to sell it when you need it, it it's not worth what you think it is. Yeah. That is well, that's a good segue, um, I think, to this next question, which is obviously the Fed, what well, kind of segue in here a little bit, but real estate was hot. <laughs> uh, and then the Fed was like, oh, there's this thing called inflation we should be worried about. Uh, let's 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 skyrocket the Fed fund rate uh, and you know their approach. I, I've been very, very honest. I think the Fed was late to the party uh, and should have been you know, smaller doses a little bit earlier on. So it wasn't such a jolt to, you know, to the economy and to real estate. And what we have now obviously is a massive slowdown that's occurred. So I guess my question is, Fed approach, your thoughts, rates, where are they headed? Where are they gonna end up? Now that there's been the shift, as you mentioned, even with the with this stepping in with Silicon Valley Bank, the Fed only did a 25 basis point increase. So like, where, where's your take on all this? Well, so let's give me, let me give you a couple of comments about rates. We've been, pretty consistent about where we think rates are gonna go throughout the end of this year and in the next year. There are two things that are gonna impact rates. Well, let's do the easy one. You've already mentioned it, James, and that is, what is gonna happen is the Fed uh, uh, tries to fight inflation. The second thing I will send to you is I've gone back to 1955 with a grid and I've looked at every time there was an inflationary period in America, back to 1955, every single time, without exception, right after, as the Fed raises, there's a recession. Every <laughs> right. time. I think there's 12 of them, and 12 out of 12, there's a recession after the Fed fights inflation. Why is that? You hit the nail on the head, they start too late, they go too hard, and then they overshoot it, and then they come back down, and they have to soften on interest rates again. So you're going to see rates start to soften in the third and fourth quarter of this year, if they haven't already started, and into the first quarter and the second quarter of next year. Pretty good time to see lower interest rates in the, in the thick of the home buying season of 2024 and the la latter half of the home buying season of 2023. That's one. The other slide I will send to you is the gap between the 10-year treasury and the 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Normally that gap is about 150 to 200 basis points. Today it's about 300 basis points, nearly double. So as rates simmer down and as the Fed stops doing what it's doing, those spreads are gonna come in. So you're gonna get a double impact. You're gonna get the impact of the Fed overshooting and starting to soften on rates and the spread coming in. What does that mean to rates? Here's my prediction. At this time next year, you're going to be approaching a high four, so four and three quarters, four and seven eighths uh, to 5% 30-year fixed rate mortgage. You'll be back to those days again of four, between four and three quarters and five is where interest rates will be at about this time next year based on the Fed overshooting and spreads coming in. That is good news that is good news <laughs> I, i'm happy on it i was like uh, i just yeah. i want to end it there but i have another question but i yeah. i would i think everybody that's listening would be like really that would be amazing um i mean if you also go back by the way i think my math's gonna be right on this from 2005 
to two, well, 2002 to 2007, interest rates were in the 5% range, and that was one of the best real estate markets we've had in a long time until we went mm -hmm. off a cliff. Yep. But before all of that, it was. Um, in fact, I think it was 2007 was almost 7 million units were sold in the United States at above 5% interest rates. So my point is, listeners, viewers, that's not a bad interest rate. Um, I guess we could also say we can expect a, a slight, uh, there's a small refi boom that will happen from people that were buying in 2022 and three. So that will be an effect yep. we'll see a little bit later as well. Um, so I think we kind of talked about uh, where that's going. We've talked about the Fed. Uh, you know, affordability sounds like it's really going to be coming. You know, some more affordability will be here. Are there other solutions? I know product wise, you've got some stuff that you've been working on. Um, it's interesting. Talk about that and then we'll wrap up in the same question. What the hell can realtors do to get deals flowing this year? Like, we got to get through well, 2023. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we all, we, we all used to talk about only affordability. And mm -hmm. affordability meant, okay, so how do I figure out a way to keep my payment low? Uh, what can I do to be able to come up with a down payment, which is always still today one of the biggest impediments of being able to buy a home for a first time home buyer? I will also, the last slide I will send to you, I promise, is I'm going to tell you why I think you are on the precipice of the biggest purchase market in the history of our industry. And the reason that is, is there's a big chunk of millennials that are finally coming to a place where they want to buy a home. Mm -hmm. It'll be the largest group of people wanting to buy that has ever happened, including the baby boomer uh, um, generation. I'll send you the grid to show you how many folks are coming into that world. The other thing I'm going to talk about with you, it, when I talk about affordability, I talk about availability. We're still really low on inventory. We're yeah. still seeing multiple yeah. offers all over the United States, not just in yeah. California, all over the United States. I am worried about that for a mm -hmm. while. And, I'll, and let me tell you what I think is happening, for, both from a, an industry perspective, from a um, trade association perspective, both the National Association of Realtors and the Mortgage Bankers Association have been talking extensively about where, are all, where is all the inventory, particularly right. the first time home buyer, new home. And what you know is what's happening. It's the most unusual competitive environment that I've ever seen. And that is a lot of the private equity, a lot of the institutional investors that are buying homes, entire subdivisions, not to buy, to sell, but to, but to, to rent. rent. Yeah are just killing availability. And I read yeah. somewhere, um, and I can send you the link if you want it, that something like 40% of the entire single family residents in America are gonna be owned by institutionals, institutional yeah. investors by 2030. Yeah, and I think last year it was nor north of 30% of transactions yeah. were done by investors, it's, which yeah, yeah which would be insane. institutional so, and the mom and pop, but yeah, it's great. So how do we fix that? Well, let me tell you one of the things that we're considering. We're looking at buying a building right now. It's a commercial building. It's in the heart of downtown. It's a beautiful building. Down, down below, we got long-term tenants. We're talking right now about repurposing the second and third floor into condos so that you are, what's interesting, let me look at my building. It's not this building, but look at my building. Right there is Costco, across the street is all the restaurants, right over there is the freeway. I mean, I'm right in the middle of everything, right here in mm -hmm. San Ramon. The question is, can I take this a building like this, leave the ground floor retail or commercial, and make the second, third, and fourth floors all residential? Where is that going to be prevalent? 
in your cities. I think a lot of these cities have watched their commercial evaporate and go back out to the suburb because remote lit, remote working is here to stay. Yeah, Most of yeah. our people have not come back. So we got to take those commercial buildings and put them into residential buildings. And again, most of them are right in the heart of downtown in the cities that they're in. I think you're going to see a lot of that happening in the upcoming years. Interesting. So repurposing basically for creating more residential. I mean, the last number I saw was 5.8 million units short of housing in the United States. It jumped from 2019 from about 3.2 million units. Um, wow. So yeah, there's a big, there's a bit it's we a had an gap. economist just recently that talked about it. it's a big gap. Although if you want to get really weird, uh, he's going to get mad at me. Watch the movie Birth Gap. If you want to get really weird oh, about Lord. like, Don't see, here he goes. Movie. Don't watch this Don't movie. Watch movie. There's yeah. a there's a theory that basically the population growth is going to slow and then eventually we'll have the other side where we'll have too much inventory down the road. Um, but certainly in the short term, we have we, we definitely have that problem. I guess my question is, and we'll wrap up with this. You talk about millennials. You know, does prices need to come down in order for that group to be able to afford? I mean, to be able to get into a house. I mean, where are we? Where is the income gap on on that? I think that I don't think that's the way it's going to go. I think what we have to do is be a little more creative in how we're going to help people that are coming out of um, typically one of the greatest generations that has uh, student debt in the history of yeah, student that's my debt. My point. Yeah. I think you need yeah. to talk about how are we going to help people come up with a down payment. We have a a program called Home Fund It, which helps you crowdsource your down payment. Uh, we are looking at, and we're having conversations right now on two separate fronts. One, we're talking to the Department of Education about modifying student loans, that if you are a first-time home buyer, you can delay when you have to start amortizing your student loan for 10 years, which gets you into the more robust mm -hmm. earning period of your career. Interesting. And the second thing we're talking about is a more sensible equity share. So today's equity share is pretty egregious. So I'm gonna give you your down payment, Keith, here's 20% down, and I'm gonna get 20 or 30% of the equity in your home forever until right. you sell your home and you can pay me back, which is a, an enormous return, like 25 right. or 30% return. I don't think you need those kinds of returns. So we're talking to Fannie Mae about something that's a reasonable return, four, eight, 12% return on your money, which is more than enough. And you're secured because obviously you are in a position and you are become on an owner in the home. So what does that just do? To, it allows just to make to sure more people understand. Let me unpack that a little or, or ask questions. So what you're saying is I would go get a loan, a 30 year fixed or whatever loan I would normally be getting today. And uh, the bank would not only lend me the money and I would pay interest for that, but they would also become a partner, theoretically, uh, or maybe there's a better okay. word, but an owner in, and take an ownership interest in the home alongside with me as the first time home buyer. And then someday, seven, 10, 12 years down the road, when I liquidate that asset, they would take six, eight, 10, 12% of the profit. That is exactly it, except one quick caveat. We've been yeah, talking perfect. to municipalities about whether or not that if you stayed in the home for a period of time, that the mm. percentage you would owe would diminish would shrink. Would shrink. Over Interesting. Yeah. Smart. Interesting. Pretty cool, pretty cool thought. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. we have to get creative with some of this stuff because obviously there's a there's only so much income and obviously the cost of living is so expensive, especially here in California. It's different I have other one states, other but, thing on the inventory side and then Chris, I've got my crazy idea that I'm gonna float to you and you're gonna think I'm nuts and then probably never talk to me again. But so one of the thing around inventory too is we're about to have the biggest rollover in real estate in the history of the country. So not only are we about to have the largest buyer population, the baby boomer generation will age out of housing, right? That's a nice way to say they're gonna die. <laughs> uh, but so they'll age out of housing <laughs> 
and that will become available. What's going to happen with that, right? How much of that gets kept by families as investment? How much of that gets put on the open market for millennials to turn into trade up properties? There's a massive chunk of properties that will be rolling over. And I don't know that we have a great idea of how that inventory is going to be treated, but that'll be a piece of the of the overall inventory equation as we move over the next decade. Now my crazy ass. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I want to hear crazy ass. To that point, though, Keith, I think what you're going to also start to see is the, the, the programs specifically tailored to help children buy the home yeah. that they were raised From, in. Interesting. So they can stay in the communities that they already know. That is yeah. another area we're focused on. Yeah, that would be yeah. great, right? That sort of uh, generational housing, which is an excellent yeah. segue oh, to my crazy idea. Yeah, we're about to put it Crazy out here live Keith, in front of the comes. world. Yep. Uh, it's been great being on this podcast. James will never have me co-host again, but here I go. <laughs> so there's there, there's only a few numbers that go into a mortgage, right? There's how much they're uh, going to borrow for how long at what rate. And those are the three numbers, right? And right. if prices go up, they will be borrowing more and more. So we don't want to mess with that number. Uh, the rate, we tried that one, right? Got a little weird in... 2008, 2009, so maybe we don't mess with that one. So the only one left is term, right? The length of the mortgage. So how about you and I start 100-year mortgages? What the hell? Yeah, no, come on, <laughs> think about it. Fully amortized though, for 100 years, payment would be lower. I know that no one wants to buy it on the secondary mortgage market, so like we're stuck a little, but that would solve the problem, right? It would. Uh, we allow drinking, by the way, Chris, in case you haven't figured that out. There's a bottle yeah, of whiskey yeah, by his yeah. desk here. <clears throat> so let me comment to that, though, Keith, because oh I think All you right. actually are on to something. Oh, God. We yes, are looking yes. right now at what we're calling the self-modifiable mortgage, so that you're going to be able to modify your own mortgage month to month at any given time. You're going to laugh hmm. in a minute of what I'm talking about, but the self-modifiable mortgage you can pay the 30-year mortgage, 30-year payment, the 15-year payment, the interest-only payment, or you can pay the neg amortizing payment. So mm. all I just described to you was a pay option arm. Right. So a pay option arm is essentially a loan that allows you to be able to borrow against future equity. Now, everyone throws up when you say pay option arms today. Right, because it sounds like before, people. yeah. They were sold to the wrong people and mm. they were sold badly. So mm -hmm. today though, I think if you structure them in such a way and you allow a person to be able to understand how these loans work, I believe that there is a time and a place for this product. We, we eliminated it because they were known as toxic mortgages, right. but they were only toxic because again, we did a bad job in explaining them. And, sure. and I think yeah. anything that you do a bad job explaining use, it can be abused. And, and, and I frankly think it was. Yeah. So that's a no on my 100-year mortgage, basically, though, <laughs> is just what I'm hearing. <laughs> we want to have mortgages for longer than you live is the there new is concept. There is precedent. So, it's called a generational yeah. mortgage. They have them in Japan. Oh, I'm just saying it exists. All it right. Exists. We're going to end the pod on that note. So, Chris, yeah. uh, thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure. Uh, just a wealth of information and knowledge. Congrats on the acquisition. Uh, I'd love to see all of the, the growth of CMG and just watch from the sidelines. And um, if anybody 
wants to get in touch with Chris, his contact information's in there, just give him a little bit to respond. Uh, we'll share some of the, the slides that he was talking about. And Chris, again, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks so much, James. Thanks, Keith. I really appreciate being here.